This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 15th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Many deep red states have taken some significant steps toward reducing penalties for low-level crime in an attempt to save money. But what's driving that effort today? Derek Cohen with the Texas Public Policy Foundation discusses some of the hopes for future criminal justice reform. There's been a tremendous turnaround in polling on criminal justice issues and how the public thinks people who've been convicted of something uh, ought to be treated. So what has driven that? Well, Caleb, you need to first look at how we got to uh, the poll, the initial polling on, on criminal justice, especially when we look at the polling of the early 80s and then through the early 90s. You generally see what we've known in academia, academia as the punitive public. In other words, you see that the public given as druthers, would rather punish than not. The only problem is this preference exists in a binary. It is simply, is crime bad? Do we punish it? Yes or no. And now that's obviously an oversimplification of the questions asked, but it didn't get much more uh, in-depth than that. So drilling down a lot of the social science researchers, as they found out um, in subsequent iterations, is that when given more information, we've actually found that the public gets far less punitive because instead of dealing with uh, you know the hypothetical offender in one's mind, which is you know the depraved heart murderer versus um, you know the person who's graffiti tagging a uh, a garage, you know we're going to err towards the former than the latter. So the more information uh, that is given, the more we we see that that effect dissipate. One example of this was a test that was run in uh, Hamilton County, Ohio, in Cincinnati. Um, basically, they were testing the proposition of whether or not three strikes is a good policy. And they simply said, would you support three, you know, 25 to life for, you know, three-time felons? Um, yes or no? And they, remarkable, 88% said, oh, yeah, that's, that seems pretty rational. So then, using a factorial analysis, they said, okay, well, here are certain vignettes that would certainly trigger a three-strike sentence, but, you know, qualified as uh, f- uh, felony offenses that weren't necessarily seen uh, with the moral opprobrium as whatever one would initially go to when they hear of the three-strike. You know, think here's somebody with three armed robberies or something like that. You know, well, that's clearly not the bulk of the, uh, the felony uh, offending pool. And so once they did that, they only found 17% actually support that, and that was 10% support uh, confining with the possibility of release after those 25 years and 7% without. So it's one of those things where the more you actually qualify the information, the less punitive the public seems. And then not only that, but if you look at this over time, uh, surveys from that era, from the 90s, and what we're getting into now, you generally see it trending downward as crime goes down. So uh, crime is a salient topic in the in the public's imagination. You know, it's right for demagoguery. It's right for uh, if it bleeds, it leads news. And so you generally see crime existing in the public consciousness it is a very is a very bad thing because it's necessarily unqualified um, with any sort of a caveat as to what we're referring to when we're talking about this felony or this misdemeanor. Many states that are deep red states have undertaken criminal justice reform on the basis of uh, financial concerns. Um, but that has continued even as those concerns seem to have abated. 
Certainly, and uh, you know, coming from the Texas Public Policy Foundation, you know, no more, nowhere have we seen that more than in the state of Texas itself. You know, the uh, the stop to the uh, prison building binge of the of the 1990s in Texas uh, pretty much came in 2005 when uh, Jerry Madden was appointed to be the chair of Corrections Committee, and the speaker simply told him, you know, we can't build any more prisons simply because of the the overhead costs that they impose. So Jerry had to look at, you know, get with uh, John Whitmire, the chairman of uh, a Senate criminal justice, and f- basically find a way to rework the system head to toe where we don't need this reliance on, you know, ver- you know, bed, you know, bed space like we did prior to. And they were a- able to obviate the need for 17,000 prison beds and overhead costs of $2.1 billion over the course of five years. And they were able to turn that, turn that ship Basically, and from there they've closed three prisons. Now that's all, you know. That's all the, uh, you know. That's almost, uh, you know, a, a story uh, committed to memory by now. Um, but what you saw was when 2005, when that happened, Texas was actually doing pretty well for itself. You know, we we started to get the the leading end of the the recession in 2007. We were looking for. Uh, actually, multi, uh, well, it was probably double digit cuts across the board to most agencies. Um, we were looking at that, and they simply. <clears throat> In 2005, let several of these um, reforms through, though not the the omnibus reform that that prioritized uh, community corrections, probations, parole, uh, and the effectiveness thereof over actual custodial sanctions of prison and jail. Where does polling stand now, and what have been the uh, political outcomes for politicians who have taken up criminal justice reform, reducing penalties, reducing jail time, uh, who have essentially made this a priority. Certainly, certainly. So, in 2013, we were about, you know, we were five years on from, from the omnibus reforms in 2007, and we actually wanted to go back at, at TPPF and look at what the public's perception of this was. You know, are we losing ground to the, uh, the tough-on-crime rhetoric that so defined the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s? And we went back and actually pulled in broad spectrum, you know, rehabilitation versus punishment versus deterrence versus incapacitation versus restitution and how those actually uh, came out. We actually asked what is the number one goal of the criminal justice system at the very least only insofar as we apply it to first and nonviolent offenders. And they said, you know, the respondents said categorically the number one goal should be rehabilitation. You know, now that was that was closely followed by punishment. But when we start... Um, when we start uh, looking at what the second goal should be, punishment falls off precipitously. In other words, very few people think that there, there are people that think that punishment should be the first goal of the system. You know, retributivist punishment should be the first goal of the system. But then there uh, are very few people that think that it should also be like a secondary goal, tertiary goal perhaps. But we generally see that the rehab, the desire for rehabilitation, persists throughout. And so this really pushes back on the well, let's just warehouse them, let's just you know ratchet up sentences because we're going to get uh, a deterrent effect. In fact, when we actually tested the deterrent effect, people who said you know, the deterrent effect should be the number one goal of the criminal justice system. They only 7.5% said, yeah, we agree with that. Now, 21% said it should be the secondary effect, but they didn't want it to be the primary effect. Now, one more thing that was interesting is when we looked at uh, first-time versus nonviolent uh, offenders versus repeat offenders, uh, we saw that for the first time in nonviolent offenders, people preferred that prison only be used or, or j- prison or jail be only used 16.7% of the time versus 77.3% in 
who prefer some form of uh, for some form of treatment. Now, when we talk about repeat offenders, and this is what is driving a lot of the the debate today, well, what do we do about more serious or, or persistent offenders? Well, we actually saw that for the prison slash jail response for that, 27.4 percent think that's the preferable option. 62.2 percent think treatment's still the viable option. And that's where I think that we are really starting to make headway is more that once people understand the issue more, that they're actually seeing these are the results that you get. And you know, in 2015, we were in session in the, uh, in the Texas legislature, we actually had the opportunity to pull bills or to pull uh, the specific items that were contained in some of the bills that were moving through the legislature. And they tended to echo this as well. You know, we pulled uh, truancy reform. You know, we've discussed here before that Texas was one of two states that still used the criminal justice system as the court of first resort when dealing with truancy. Well, we saw that 71% actually said There's, this is a completely indefensible system. And in 2015, the Texas legislature reformed that. We saw that, uh, you know, almost 60% wanted to adjust felony thresholds and peg it to inflation. You know, we've we've increased our felony theft threshold in Texas to $2,500. You know, in in, um, in Virginia, it's still at it's still at $200. And so that's one of the areas that really drives a lot of this. Um, uh, some of these custodial issues is when you have inflexible terms. Now, there's some people that want to peg um, that want to peg uh, the felony theft threshold to inflation. Now, that's a tough that's a tough ask because you're basically kicking out a moving goalpost. Then, but regardless, it still shows that the public thinks that that should at least be in just deliberately with inflation, and that was something that we were able to do in Texas. What have states done with regard to uh, raising that felony threshold? Because it seems to be. Uh, you know, felony is a serious crime, and it, it affects you for the rest of your life, or potentially can. So, what are what are some of the unique ways that states are trying to deal with that? Well, well, this actually gets to a, a very important issue because you know this was a topic that was uh, that is currently under debate in the California legislature. The California's legislature's uh, current felony theft threshold is nine hundred and fifty dollars, and they say, well, you know, we have people that are you know smashing, grabbing uh, iPhones, which are six to eight hundred dollars and getting out and not even being uh, not even being prosecuted. That's a legitimate concern, but that's an enforcement issue. Do you need to construct a sentencing framework around, you know, current enforcement practices that change, you know, that change very, uh, very rapidly? You know, in Texas, I guarantee, you know, we have a very high felony theft threshold. But if you actually saw somebody in that same hypothetical scenario, (laughs) most of the district attorneys that I know, uh, they would they would still get their their class B misdemeanor or class A misdemeanor out of it, whichever the case may be, simply because that in and of itself does not mitigate the moral opprobrium, but it offers a greater uh, spectrum of possible sentencing options for that person. Not felonies. Not felonies, exactly. For the purely self-interested politician uh, who cares about incumbency above all else, which presumably is most of them, uh, what are the what's the upside of taking on criminal justice reform as an issue? Well, that, that's a good question because the polling simply shows that upon nuance, you know, with a nuanced question, it's a safe issue. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it in and of itself messages well. But we're actually seeing that that corner being turned as well, simply because if you look in the 
uh, you know, 2015, you know, 2014 to 2016, some of the elections we've had in the states. You had uh, a couple of isolated examples where the old school tough on crime rhetoric has reemerged. You've seen that in Alaska, and you've seen that in um, you've seen that in Louisiana. However, both times, perhaps, and this would be a badge of honor. Both times they've emerged more as a campaign's death rattle as opposed to this is what I'm leading on. But then, you know, that's not dispositive of it being a safe issue. I think more to that question is look at people who've made a deliver, a deliberate effort to campaign on that. One great example that jumps to mind is uh, Governor Nathan Deal of, of Georgia. You know, he campaigned on the criminal justice reforms that that he helped uh, move through his state. And he actually increased his voter share in certain communities that aren't typical uh, uh, Republican constituencies. So you're generally seeing that this is that, that quote unquote 80% issue that tends to uh, attract people uh, pan-ideologically and not just uh, on one certain side of the aisle. Derek Cohen is a deputy director in the Center for Effective Justice at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.